Good morning. I'm not sure why they turned off the fog machine. Okay. That was supposed to be a part of the whole thing today. No. You know me, that's not a part of the whole thing. But um, uh, as I've said last week uh, and reminded this week, parenting is a humbling experience, is it not? If you've been a parent, you realize very quickly that it can be very humbling. Uh, just yesterday, uh, listen to this, okay? Um, I, I'm leaving here. Uh, I ref the last couple games of Upwards, and I get this call from my wife, and um, you can tell when you answer the phone, right, the, the tone of voice. And uh, the, 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 the question was, where are you at? <laughs> and so I told her, well, here, here's what happened. Um, Sage is our one kid that could sleep 11 or 12 hours a day. She just is a sleepy head, right? You guys probably had one of those of the ones that you've had. She just is notorious for being able to sleep anywhere, especially in the car. I mean, she just like, the rest of the family is amazed that she goes to sleep. I mean, the car starts, we're five minutes down the road, she's already asleep. And so um, Nicole had to run to Defiance. Um, we're in the middle of this whole fish tank thing, okay? Um, she wants a fish tank. Well, it's a whole thing, man. Like, you got to wait 24 hours for this. And we've made two trips to a store, and it's very frustrating, to be honest. But um, <clears throat> so she needs to stop by Walmart on her way home. Sage and Sailor in the car, right? And um, Sage is at that age where if you need to run into the store, you know, she can sit in the car with Sayla. Um, she's old enough. Sayla has fallen asleep, all right? Um, and uh, so Nicole just parks or pulls into a slot. We always make sure we lock the door, right? And she runs in. <laughs> and she comes back out and... Sage is just passed out asleep. Both girls are just gone asleep. And for 10 minutes, my wife bangs on the window and yells her name, nothing. Three people stopped. They are very concerned. It's a very humbling experience, is it not? In fact, one guy wasn't so sure what was going on. He stuck around. And she, 10 minutes worth of like banging on the window, nothing. She is gone. And so she calls me and I drive to Walmart just to unlock the van. And as soon as I pull in and unlock the van, I, I like, Sage! And she wakes up, you know, looks around. And has no idea the turmoil she's caused for 10 minutes. And the concern. Uh, and the one guy was still there. He was a couple of parking spots down. Just making sure that everything was okay. Parenting is so humbling. It is. And that's what we talked about last week. We want to finish this week with. But just as a recap. Again, we do this every February. Because we believe that the foundational unit. The foundational organization that God created was the family. And so it's good for us every year to come back and just think about 
what God says about the family. And this is where we live most of our lives, in the context of our homes, our families. And so it's just a good reminder every year to think about uh, what it is that God wants us to know. And we talked about it from this angle this year, that a fight for the family is a fight worth having. You are fighting for something. You are fighting against something. It's the nature of this life. Fighting has a very negative context, but also has a very positive context. And the premise this year is that a fight for the family is worth having. Of all the fights that you can be involved in, uh, political, community, uh, all these things. Man, there's all sorts of stuff always coming up, always being fought for and against. That God's premise is that we should be people who consistently, intentionally, always have saved our energy, time, and resources to prioritize the family. To be intentional about fighting for our families and fighting against. We are not Switzerland when it comes to the family. We are fighting actively for our families. And that, that calls for us to have great intentionality. To have great focus and energy. Or we would say it, we've said it this way also. That of all the fights to be had, fighting for the family is a good fight. Remember the context, Nehemiah uh, restoring the homeland. Coming back from captivity. Uh, restoring what God had originally designed and intended, and realizing that if they were going to be able to do that, they were going to face enemies. But yet they were trying to recapture, restore what God had intended. And he says this, don't be afraid of your enemies. You remember the story in Nehemiah. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And I don't think there's really much of a difference uh, in today's uh, uh, culture that um, we are always trying to capture the plan that God has for our families. And yet a fallen world is, is opposed to God's design for a family. And there's a continual uphill swim and climb against what culture is trying to do to uh, eliminate the construct, the design, the plan God has for our homes. You know, we've tried to talk about this is the fight you need to be having. But Paul, he uses this kind of imagery all the time. Running, athletics, he even uses boxing. He said this, therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. And the scriptures teach us that not only is this the fight to be had, but th this is how we can end up fighting this fight. That by accessing God's word, by hearing his plan, by knowing his design, by putting into practice, practice the principles of his word, we end up being an effective fighter. And so we're not just trying to uh, fight a fight without not knowing how to fight. And I love the words of Proverbs that we've, we've noticed every week, and I hope it just sinks in. A house is built by wisdom. And become strong through good sense. And that's what the word of God does. We've talked about fighting for three things. Authenticity. Um, at the heart of how to fight for the family is you. Your walk with Christ. Um, you're not going to win this battle. If you're not real, authentic, a follower of Jesus. We talked about intimacy. Again, that the way God has designed the home is that 
the, the, the most valued relationship in the home is the one of husband and wife. Uh, that sets the tone for all other relationships. That gives our kids hope uh, for relationships. As God is relational by nature, he has created us to be relational by nature. We need relationships. We thrive. We live in relationship. That's how we were designed. And for our kids growing up to see a picture of mom and dad having a healthy, vibrant, strong relationship, it gives them hope. It builds a sense of security and trust for them to go out and go ahead and trust in the value of relationships. That's the fight for intimacy between husband and wife. Uh, we talked last week about the fight for connectivity as we think about parenting. Why we say a fight for connectivity is because Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, and the phrase we, we looked at last week was bring them up in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. That as we raise our kids, as we understand God's plan for our homes, that he calls us with great intentionality to parent in a certain way. But the context of how we do training and instruction is first of all set by a culture of bringing them up. This bringing them up is um, it's nourish, provide care. It's in a loving environment. We've noticed last week that a child with a full love tank can respond to parental guidance without resentment. That you lead with love with your kids. Your cuds, your, your cuds. <laughs> your kids absolutely have to be confident in how much you love them. That you've expressed that to them. That you speak love to them. That they're not uh, wondering or uh, hesitant or unsure about how much you absolutely care for them. Uh, we talked about the love languages. That all of us speak uh, love languages. Uh, actually, all of us have primary love languages. Maybe one or two that stand out more. And we just tried to remind you, have you understood your kids enough to know how they receive love, how they give and receive love? Have you taken the time to figure out how they're wired and what communicates to them how much you love them? Because parental guidance without resentment exists when they first of all know how much you love them. We talked about, you know, uh, physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, acts of service. And figuring out how to speak into your child's life how much you care and how much you love them. This week, and so it's a fight for connectivity. For connectivity. But this week we want to continue that conversation um, about parenting. About what I think this, this verse teaches us. And I call it a fight for potentiality. A fight for potentiality. I would say this. A parent's priority is to gradually transfer a child's dependence away from them until it rests solely on God. A parent's priority is to gradually transfer 
your child's dependence away from them until it rests solely on God. This is a process of training and instruction that is meant to end with you sending them out of your home into the world. Ready, mature, understanding, based upon primarily a relationship with Jesus. Right now would be a great time to crack a joke about our pastoral intern still living in his parents' basement at 27. Justin's not here today, so I can't, I don't get the benefit of that. No, we understand the circumstances of that. But normally the process of parenting is to, you're there to steward. It's a sacred stewardship of God's love and grace and plan. And to gradually bring them along until they're ready to face the world, so, so to speak, equipped with God's grace. And so in this verse, Ephesians 6, 4, I think there's what we need to see. I think it's interesting that when we look at this verse, uh, we see that God immediately warns against over-correcting children, against placing demands on them that will be counterproductive. The idea is to create the conditions that will make it as easy as possible for your kids to understand and embrace God's instructions and His ways. He starts this way with a negative, a warning, fathers. Now, uh, you know, honestly, this word is also in the New Testament translated in other places, parents. Okay? So, I, I think there's two things being said here. It's fathers take the lead, but obviously we know that the practical nature of raising kids is absolutely uh, an equal uh, responsibility of mom and dad that's why three verses earlier he has said children obey your parents he didn't just say children obey your fathers he says children obey your parents and then he comes back and I think it's also why this is so important is to understand the culture to what she was speaking in by this time in the world especially in the Roman culture fathers were the just authoritarian figures of society. And when you had women who were not valued, who were a little bit more than property, um, and even kids assumed that role also. It was a male-driven society. And a father could arbitrarily make decisions with his family that really were not good we're not in the best interest of wife and children, and yet there was, no, there, there was no accountability from the culture about that. I mean, it was, it was crazy the amount of, of authority they had. Even to the fact where, you know what, I'm just tired of this kid. I don't want him around anymore. Let's leave him down uh, at this. There were places where you could just, and no one would have thought a thing about it what God 
through Paul speaks into their culture and to us is a stark contrast between a father like this who is completely selfish, who is self-centered, who is arbitrary, who is uh, the center of his whole world is himself. It's like, no. As a father, there is a whole new dynamic that you need to understand. And God has always intended for fathers to be something way different than what is practiced in the culture in that day and for all, for all cultures. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Um, it's a word frustrate. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 says about the same thing. It says, Father, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. This word discouraged to me is, is such a powerful word. It means they will lose heart. They will lose spirit. They will become disinterested, moody, sullen. Isn't that just normally teenagers? But <laughs> With a kind of blank resignation toward life. That actually the role of a parent can be so frustrating to a kid. The practices, the actions of a parent can so frustrate a kid that they lose their zest for life. And they actually begin to adopt just this blank resignation about life. He says, don't do that. I've thought about how that can happen. Um, how do I frustrate my kids? How could I frustrate my kids? Here's, some, here's a list. Here's ten things. Overprotection. Overprotection. Um, here's what I would say. Fear and loss of control stops a parent often from allowing their kids to participate in good, healthy, natural things. A parent who is, we talked about this last week, who is fearful, who are led by fear, begin to consistently overprotect their kids because they're not there. They lose control. I, I've had to walk through those, those waters of for the first time, right? Letting my kid just go to this event, and I'm not there. I can't imagine some of you are letting them drive for the first time, right? And yet, if you do not let them do that, and I've observed this, parents who are so fearful that 16 comes, no, you can't drive yet because I'm scared, the kind of frustration that begins to exist in a child begins to frustrate them because parents are called to gradually transfer responsibility. Guess what? We have figured out all sorts of securities and protection and uh, security systems and processes to try to, to build in protection. At the end of the day, your kids, <laughs> there's nothing you can do. You can only go as far as you can go. You've got to trust. And if you don't give away at the appropriate pace, 
you are going to build frustration in their hearts and lives that exasperate them. Amen? I'm learning this, guys. If you know the way I'm wired, I like to be in control of everything. But I have definitely learned, and I am learning. And I'm actually, God is just really setting me free from a lot of these things. Hey, if I don't let go, I am going to cause in my child's heart a frustration that could embitter him, could block him from experiencing the life that God is wanting him to experience. It just jams up the process. It jams it up. And it all comes down to me, my fear. Amen? I'm sorry. I don't know why I keep saying amen. I'm just telling myself that, right? Amen, Chip? Amen. Overprotection. Favoritism. I'll tell you what, the scriptures are full of this. This should be very apparent to us from so many stories in the Old Testament. Favoritism is absolutely a way to cause frustration, to exasperate your kids, to embitter them. Setting unrealistic goals. Listen, I think all of us want the very best for our kids. But then beginning to understand your kids, their personality, their wiring, and figuring out what goals are good for them. Um, I, got, I got one in here today, so this is tricky. So there's, we have, as parents, we have learned that you have to have different goals for your kids. Right? It's not just a hard and fast, everybody hits the mark here. No. How are they wired? What are they capable of? Right? And being good, flexible with that, and not creating unrealistic goals. This is especially prevalent in our culture when it comes to GPAs, athletic achievements, and on and on. Most of the time, those things are driven by a, de a deficit in a parent's life, not a child's life. A, a parent is looking for validation. If my kid's this good, I feel better about myself. I'm more accepted in my culture, in my community. It's really not a lot of times about the kid as much as it's validation for a parent. And in that, so often we can begin to create unrealistic goals for our kids. And this causes tons of frustration. Overindulgence. Um, allowing our kids to overindulge in a partis uh, 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 an action, activity, uh, interest. Uh, and just allowing this to the point when you begin to realize, oh shoot, they're doing this way too much. I need to pull back. And it creates frustration. If there's a balanced approach at the beginning, a temperance, a temperate approach at the beginning. For me, obviously, it's things like with my boys, like, Video games, right? Um, we have a PlayStation. I'm not like, no PlayStation. But is that in balance in their life? Because then I begin to realize, or any parents begin to realize, oh my goodness, my kid's not developing at the rate they should because they're spending 10 hours a day playing PlayStation, right? 
And so you begin to take the, like, try to take it back, and then it's like, and they, they get bitter, and it's frustrating, and all of a sudden there's, there's walls in your relationship where overindulgence is something we need to be aware of because it can cause future frustration and be embittering. Discouragement. Oh, man. The power of life and death is in the tongue, is what Proverbs says. Our kids need to hear encouraging words from us to not be discouraging. Failing to sacrifice for them. Again, back to the society he was speaking into and the role of a father in the context of Ephesians 5. Absolutely fathers, parents. Um, Well, you already realize this, haven't you? Before you had kids, hey, let's just make a Taco Bell a Taco Bell. I'm still thinking about us in Michigan our first couple of years. It was a Taco Bell right down the road. Um, so that comes to my mind. Hey, let's just go do this. Guess what? <laughs> it ain't happening anymore with kids, right? And being willing to live for them instead of yourselves. Failing to sacrifice for them. Failing to allow them to grow up. Again, this gradual transfer I've always been taught that by the age of about 16, your kids have already developed a lot of the character. Now, God's grace is always sufficient and always transforming. But that as they reach 16 or so, then you begin to really let them make, you actually begin to let them make decisions and fail. Because then they can fail with you around. Instead of fail at 20 on their own, right? And so there's this gradual transfer. Um, And when we fail to allow them to grow up, again, uh, we frustrate them. Neglect, obviously. Verbal abuse. And obviously physical abuse. These are ways that we can frustrate them. And so he says, he warns us to be mindful of these things. But then he turns it back and he says, with loving or bring them up that loving word that nurturing nourishing kind of context in a loving environment train and instruct them these two words what in the world do these two words mean well this first word i like the niv the training word but most translations will use the word discipline Sometimes discipline can be a negative connotation, a really negative connotation. Training sounds a lot better to me, right? Train your child up in the way they should go, right? Uh, But there, it is this word discipline, but this word discipline is the idea of train, correct, cultivate, and educate. It is this idea that I am going to assume a responsibility to train my child it's not just going to be uh, uh, willy-nilly no plan no intentionality just kind of let them do what they want kind of react instead of plan and train and know this is what i have to instill in their life that's this word we've said that The balance in parenting is love and this word, training or discipline. 
Train, correct, cultivate, and educate. This word means to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior, providing guidance for responsible living, or rearing and guiding a child toward maturity. It is involving helping your child learn self-control and the ability to restrain personal desires if they interfere with what is right behavior. Now, the context of this is this. I think this is important for us. This is really different than what you would hear in a psychology class in university. We get this. David, I was born, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David wasn't born in an illegitimate relationship. All right? That's not what he's saying. I was born in a sinful situation. No. He said at birth, I was born with this sin nature. This is how we understand our kids. Born with a sinful disposition. You say, but look at Johnny. He's so perfect. He's so beautiful. Look at Susie. She, how could this little human being be sinful? <laughs> then you live a couple years with him. And you realize you're not, they, hey, stop sharing, Susie. You're sharing too much. Right? Guys, come on. You got to see this. Like, our kids, as beautiful and as overwhelming as they are, are born sinful. And sinful nature becomes sinful behavior, becomes sinful lifestyle, becomes sinful character. Amen? We have to embrace this and realize that God has called me to create a loving context that's a training context. And I am called to help train, to rear up, to bring up a person that has a sinful nature, a sinful disposition. Think about what God himself says about us as his children. He said, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. If you go down a few verses there, he says, listen, remember our fathers, they disciplined us for a while as they thought best. In that, in that section, it also says that we respect fathers and parents because they disciplined us. Um, that's a whole other sermon. They discipline us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Uh, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That we have been tasked as a parent with training up our kids and our kids are sinful. So we have to understand that as we begin the training process. I love what Proverbs promises us. Discipline your children 
and they will give you peace. They will bring you the delights you desire. What that means is, it's the satisfaction of a parent who is able to enjoy their children, who live right, who live uh, beginning to enjoy life as it's been created, who are experiencing the abundant life, right? I've watched this with you guys. I'm not there yet. My kids aren't raised yet. But I've watched you guys just light up as you talk about how your kids are growing into this world, experiencing this world, finding what they were made to do and living that out and then starting their old family and just the peace and the delight it brings to your heart, right? And he says, discipline your kids and they will give you this life. And so, I think we have to come to the realization that we're called to train sinful people. But it's for the idea of revealing to them God's will, God's plan, God's desire. It includes the realization at the appropriate time that they begin to comprehend their sinfulness. And hopefully, as you are training them and creating a process of rules, of expectations, a system, principles to live by, consequences if you don't, that they begin to, as the law does with us, begin to reveal how sinful we really are and how much we need a Savior. You're always pointing them to that in the training. And yet, he says, listen, you need to have this structure where you train, correct, uh, your kids, obviously, uh, began, younger kids. I'm amazed by some of the conversations I see parents having with younger kids. It blows me away. Like, you do realize they are not equipped yet to talk about certain things. And then you kind of respond based on their response. Like, don't do that, okay? Um, I just want to say, hey, can you hand them the checkbook next? Because you're talking to them about really serious things and you would never hand them the checkbook to just spend, okay? Like, obviously there are, especially young, they don't understand. I mean, they can't even, like, write their name yet. And you're, like, following their whims and their feelings. And the, do you feel like doing this? <laughs> I was a kid, I was like, heck no. I'd be like doing whatever I want to do all the time. I'm six, seven. I just want to do whatever I want to do. And like parents are like, you feel, well, Johnny doesn't feel like, what? Who's the parent here, right? Part of training is you set the expectations, the boundaries, the guidelines. They're never going to make the right choice yet. Right? What's going on here? I'm just like sometimes like, oh, my goodness. Can I have you for a parent and go back and start? Hey, my parents were like, hey, we're doing this because I'm training you. This is the expectation. Then, as they move to 7, 8, 9, 10, 13, 14, it begins to become a conversation. Right? Why do you think I'm asking you to do this? Why would we even expect this in our home? 
How does this relate to God? His, right? His word. And so there's this gradual training. It takes different forms and shapes. Uh, but it is a call for us to provide discipline. I like this. Discipline is correction driven by love. Discipline isn't something you do to your child, but for your child. Amen. Every study, everything in God's word above all validates that without this training and instruction in the Lord, our kids will never experience his word. You don't do this to your kids, you do it for your child. I love this graph to help us kind of think about, there is a difference between punishment and discipline, is there not? Punishment is, I get so upset about what they've done, I'm going to inflict penalty for an offense. And this can happen when you're very frustrated with your kid, right? But you lose sight of the fact that discipline is to train for correction and maturity. The focus is not, punishment says past misdeeds, discipline says future correct acts. Any of you like me, like, are you having trouble seeing that? It's a little blurry, isn't it? Sorry. Like, I don't enjoy discipline in my kids. Anybody with me? Yeah, not my favorite thing to do. But I keep telling myself, and I know that the reason I'm doing this is it's necessary. Training is necessary for a sinful human being to understand God's will and God's word. And I'm doing this not to just arbitrarily inflict punishment because I'm trying to hopefully change future behavior. Because it's destructive what they're doing. And I don't want to continue to grow in this destructive activity. The attitude is hostility and frustration on the part of the parent. Discipline, love, and concern on the part of the parent. And often if we, discipline, or if we choose to punish our kids, we create fear and guilt. If we choose to discipline our kids, we create security. Let's put it this way. The five characteristics, I believe, of biblical discipline. The necessity of discipline to dis deter destruction. Left unto ourselves, sinful people will do destructive things. The means of discipline, action, a system, uh, consequences, mean what you say, here's what you do, and words. The motive of discipline is to express love. This is amazing what they are discovering more and more and more. Kids feel most love in an ordered, disciplined environment. I see this all the time with my kids. I, I have to do something. I have to, you know, here's a consequence for the action that we've already talked about. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, they're not going to love me. It could be farther from the truth. They feel secure in that. The goal of discipline is to teach obedience. Right? Um, that's the whole deal. The Great Commission is Jesus telling us to go into the world to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have taught. Uh, the submissive life is the only life that's worth living. Submitting to the Father, living under His authority, His rule, brings blessing, brings peace, brings 
everything that we so desperately desire. Left to ourselves under our own authority as sinful people, we will destroy our lives. And we're trying to teach the fact that there is an ultimate authority, and that is God. The result of discipline, (laughs) short-term pain that brings long-term gain. All right, second word is instruction. It's encouraging, it's reproving, it's counsel. It literally means putting in the mind and implies the teaching of the Lord's ways through his words. It is any word of encouragement or reproof which leads to correct behavior. It conveys the idea of giving one counsel about avoiding or ceasing an improper course of conduct. So not only am I setting up this training system for my kids, but I come along and I consistently affirm that system. I consistently Consistently am communicating with my kids about why we're doing what we're doing, the end result in mind. It's this constant conversation piece that is so important. There is no parenting and just do as I say because I said so. Right? It's instruction. Like, okay, so we're going to have this training mechanism, but I'm going to consistently communicate about what is the purpose of this, what is the goal in mind. So Deuteronomy 6, while we lay down, while we walk, while we are eating at the table, while we're on the way to this, we're having these conversations. You see, in our world right now, the culture pushes us to be experience-rich and relationship-poor parents. We're caught up in thinking we've got to give our kids all sorts of experiences. That we're a failure if they don't experience this, this, this. We're experience-rich and we're relationship-poor. And it's hard to instruct our kids when we have poor relationships with them. And he says, listen, train them and then continue to talk, build a relationship with them as you train them in a loving environment. It's so hard now. Guess what? We're not the only source of information anymore. A lot of times as a parent, you feel like you're just one voice among many. We are so, our kids are so overexposed to things that their minds and their emotions have trouble handling so many things, often way too young. They're consequently hurried into massive temptations, which make it a struggle for them to deal with. The wrong ideas, desires, words, deeds, and attitudes of this world, uh, it, it begins a voice in their life, and they need our constant instruction, ongoing conversations. It's just not like, hey, I set up the training system. Like, just you know what the expectations are. You know, uh, no, that's, it falls far short. I am constantly having conversations about why we are doing what we're doing, living like we are, and what we expect. Because it's all pointing back to the goal of raising godly kids. And I just finished with this way. How can I know when your kids begin to make wise decisions begin to keep their commitments, and they begin to genuinely care for others, you can begin to feel like, all right, this is what I was called to do. All right, anybody else feel better about themselves after this? I always know these Sundays when I talk about parenting. That's why I preface it last week with like, I feel like I am knocked out in this area, and I feel like it's very humbling And yet God calls us to stretch ourselves, to fight for this. And if you look at me today and say, yeah, right, 
Don't give up. Believe. No. Start now. Have these conversations. It's amazing how our kids, uh, when we are willing to just stand in front of them and say, listen, I've really messed up in this area. They, they are the most forgiving people. Be, establish that relationship now. Grow that relationship today. Don't just mail it in on this. If you're like, I didn't even know about this. Like, begin to respond to God's word in this way, and he will bring blessing. He will bring growth. He will bring help and grace right now where you're at. And let me tell you, we have an opportunity, a sacred stewardship, to be catalysts in forming and training our kids to be lights in this world. To be the salt of the earth. To be able to sit back as aged people and know the fulfillment and satisfaction of watching our kids continue to spread the truth of the gospel in the world they live in and their kids as it passes down generation to generation. And to know that we have been a part of something that is beyond this world of the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Father, just help us. We all need your help as we parent. But Lord, help us to walk out of here believing and knowing that you gave us this responsibility because you believe that we are able to do incredible things. And so Lord, each of our homes as we fight for our families and this rubber meets the road, Lord, help us to be parents who love and train who keep a balance of both, who are willing to do the hard things now, the short-term pain, knowing that there's long-term gain. We follow your example as a father who disciplines those he loves. He chastens so that we might become the people that you always intended us to be. And we now join in that partnership as we have been given these kids to begin to gradually transfer their dependence to you. They first of all depend and trust on us and we train them in your ways as we are trying to gradually transfer their dependence to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You set forth the plan. You have the grace. You just ask us to commit ourselves to this way. Lord, make it so in all of our families. For the good of our families and for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you this morning.